This is The Based Catholic, because Catholicism should be the base of all hot takes. All the cool kids now are unwoke. Some of them are going back to Christianity because it's the only way to be rebellious. Because, you know, everybody's blue-haired, non-binary, and that's like, (laughs) it's the cover of Newsweek. So you have to be like a Catholic doing sing the rosary to be a problem now. Yeah. This current world we've created spiritually for people. It's about money and profit and everything has no history history or tradition, everything's so disorienting, and people are going back to things that root them. And now your host, Jessica Kramer. I want to be 30, 30 and flirty and thriving, 30 and flirty and thriving, 30 and flirty and thriving. When I was 13, my sister gave me the movie 13 Going on 30. And she did it as an ironic joke because she was 30. And I honestly should have known then that my life was not going to go according to script. So I wanted to do an episode on turning 30 that would be released on the week that I turned 30. Because I think a lot of people have a lot of different feelings and emotions approaching this age. It is a milestone birthday for a reason. And I also think there is something particularly interesting about how people are approaching 30 nowadays as opposed to even 30 years ago. By the time my parents were 30, they already had two kids. They had careers with steady paychecks, a mortgage, and in eight days... My youth will be over forever. And what exactly do I have to show for myself? I'm 29 years old and I live alone in Queens while I work for my great aunt. I still haven't been to Europe. (sighs) Happy birthday. You're not old. You're just a lawyer. It's different. I'm serious, Ethan. 30's young, but it's not that young. Okay, 10 second pity party, go. Ethan. I'm past my prime childbearing years. Wow, okay. I didn't know we were going dark. I basically wasted my entire 20s. And I hate my job. Okay, two things. You went way over. And secondly, you didn't waste your 20s. You just grew up. I honestly think I grieved turning 30 when I was much younger, just anticipating it. I think the closer you get to it, like when you're young, 30 is so old. And then the closer that you get to it, you realize, oh, 30's my friend. Like my friend's 30, my friend's over 30. And you realize it's not that different, actually. I think part of that grieving is mostly unmet expectations. I think aging is so much easier to embrace when expectations of what you wanted to accomplish by a certain age are met. And so I think sitting in that waiting place where God has you, I think that tension in that place is really hard. And I don't think you necessarily grieve about getting older and moving on and moving forward. I think it's it's grieving the version of youth that maybe played out that was different than what you wanted. And I think you're also still too young to be grateful for that. You know, you don't have the, the wisdom and 
the gift of looking back in retrospect with such gratitude for trusting God and his plans. One thing my spiritual director has said is that anybody who is serious about following God never has the life that they thought that they would. Definitely didn't realize how formative 25 to 30 would be in love and life. Why does everyone make such a big fuss about turning 30? This is not a big deal. Cut to 29 and I'm like, oh my God, I feel so stressed and anxious. Wow. And I realize it's because there is suddenly this bloody influx mm -hmm. of subliminal messaging around. Mm -hmm. If you have not built a home, mm -hmm. if you do not have a husband, if you do not have a baby and you are turning 30, and you're not in some like incredibly like secure, stable place in your career, or you're still figuring things out. There's just like this incredible amount of anxiety. I struggled in my 20s. In literally all the ways that one can struggle, I did. So there's a part of me that's not super attached to the last decade. Even though there were some great things that came out of it, there overall, I think, was a lot of disappointment just because they were so different than what I thought they would be or what I wanted them to be. If I'm looking at it in terms of what they were versus my expectation, then yes, I struggled. But if I compare myself to people that were really suffering in a way that I haven't, then I feel silly making that statement. And I think sometimes that's how we have to look at life is who are you comparing yourself to? Are you comparing yourself to the fantasy, the fake reality, the version of life that you wish it was? Or are you comparing yourself to how bad it could be. Turning 30 was a huge relief. Well, the day after turning 30. Turning 30 seemed daunting. When I turned 30, I I freaked out more leading up to it than the actual day. I was only two months before 30 when I started dating my now husband. 30 single was really hard. I know a lot of other men and women in that boat and they share the same sentiments. I turned 30 two months ago and the biggest takeaway I have felt is this concept that my future is up to me. No one is coming to save me. Last year I turned 30 um, and I would say that I actually do not feel much different, um, but I suppose I do feel a little bit older, not in a bad way. So many thoughts were going through my head, but one of them was that before you're 30, there are so many expectations. You need to be married by 30. You need to have kids by 30. You need to have a house by 30. You need to pay off your car by 30. X, Y, and Z, get your finances in order. But once you hit 30, you realize that those expectations don't exist anymore. It's kind of like it's any man's game. I remember thinking I wasn't where I wanted to be. I wasn't married. There have been some significant setbacks and I was back in school trying to figure out how to change course. We think of our 30s as children as times of our life where we'll be successful and uh, whatever success means to you. And in my mind, it was family building. For other people, it's, you know, career success. But as I was approaching 30, I was unmarried, no kids, and had just graduated my master uh, for my master's program. So there was a piece of me that felt a little unsuccessful. I think your attitude toward 30 is really 
your attitude toward your expectations in life. If you are on the road toward, um, you know, what you want to do for your life, it can be an exciting birthday. And if you're not on that road, it can be a very scary birthday. I don't see it as a negative because I do think that my my life is where I thought it would be. You know, I got I'm married and I have a I have a daughter. She's two, so I've also been able to within after she was born, um, take a step back at work. I started taking, you know, I started when I went back from maternity leave with her two days a week. Now I'm kind of down to one day a week, sometimes two. So it's nice, you know, being able to be home and not having to put her in daycare. I got married at 31. You know, maybe a little later than I anticipated when I was thinking about marriage and family building when I was little, when I was a child. Um, but I'm still able to have a family. I'm still able to achieve the successes that I wanted. And, um, you know, I find myself having a lot of sympathy for those who are still seeking um, family building when they're in their 30s and still seeking uh, familial success in that kind of way. Um, but we just, we just live in a time that makes it harder to, to achieve all, all of our um, family ambitions younger, especially if you live on the coasts. Social media has also played a role in, I guess, just making people feel the pressure that they need to look like they've arrived and like they're super adventurous and super successful at 30. Um, so I personally got off of Instagram over a year ago, I would say, because it just kind of felt like what you would see when you would get on and scroll is just everybody competing to build a better brand than each other or people emulating maybe one person and trying to build a brand that's similar to their brand. And I guess it just kind of leaves you with this feeling of hopefully some consumer will come along and decide that your brand is better and that essentially they want to purchase your brand and pick you over somebody else's brand. And so I guess I just feel like being off of social media has kind of just helped me to really just, I guess, sit and be comfortable and um, just be okay with where God has me at this point and just not compare myself with my other 500 Instagram friends that I'm not actually even friends with. And outside of that, I also just kind of feel like getting off social media helps you just, just to kind of embrace the mystery of meeting people. Because with social media, it's kind of like you may meet people, but then you're not actually, you're not actually just like taking the time to get to know them or figure them out, you just log on to social media and you just like stalk them to figure out like where they've been and all the things that they've accomplished. It's also a lot different, you know, at, at work when I work with, you know, younger people that are coming out of college that are 22, 23, 24 and, oh, how old are you? You know, they think I'm younger and they're shocked. Oh my gosh, you're 31. Yes. Like they, you know, they're acting, oh my gosh, like that seems old, but even though, you know, I don't, I don't feel old. I remember at 24 thinking 30 was a green old age and it really isn't. I'm not saying it's how some people say 30 is the new 20, that that's always, I feel like comes from a place of someone with either bitterness or s sadness or feeling like their 20s didn't add up. 
it's a wake-up call and I, I think why some people have an issue with the age uh, or the the milestone of 30 is because they have to face themselves and look uh, look at their goals the goals they've had since childhood and wonder have I attained anything and, and where have I gotten um, or am I just approaching midlife without doing much for my life? Um, and so I think that's why 30 is hard, because you have to self-reflect a little bit. And, and that's maybe not the worst thing. Whatever you decide to do with your life is completely your call. And it always has been, but in your 20s you feel that someone is making the calls for you where you have to adhere to a certain expectation, whether by society or your family or your friends or keeping up with them. And so when I turned 30, it was like this weight just dropped off my shoulders of I have to keep up with everyone. And suddenly it became, all right, I learned so much about myself in my 20s and I Maybe this happens every decade, I have yet to find out, but who I was at 21 versus 30 are completely different people. And so I learned so much about myself in my 20s that when I hit the day after turning 30, I was like, okay, now that I know myself, what am I going to do about it? God will always be there for me as a support, as a guiding light, as the way, the truth, and the life. But the actions I take will be the most impactful um, factors that influence my future. So I think that I am transitioning from a mindset of passivity to being more active in every aspect of my life. After turning 30, I felt a sense of freedom. Sure, I wasn't where I had wanted to be, but there was time to change course. I didn't need to be in a certain spot at 30 to be what we call successful. I largely feel the exact same as I did at 29. And um, it's something that makes you look at people older than you and realize that everyone is basically a young person inside, just in a slightly older body. I remember waking up on that day and realizing that nothing had changed. I was still the same person and life was going to be okay. So yeah, and I'm almost 31 and I would say I'm thriving. So if anything, I'm happy that I turned 30. People out there who are approaching 30 and haven't attained all those things or feel like they haven't been able to give it all to God, I hope that they um, can recollect and see the ways that they are contributing to the kingdom and continue striving for it and entrusting their 30s to God because I think God can make good use of it. I'm Crames, and this is my corner. This is Jess. Kramer? I'm listening. I listened about the housing crisis. thought that I had was, I don't know if this was discussed, but the whole apartment thing, like you getting your apartment. I mean, you found like a nice older place that's like affordable, um, but still in like a safe area. I mean, these girls that I work with, don't get me wrong, like they're making good money as a nurse, but like... Don't, not enough that I know what they make. So it's not enough 
to probably live the lifestyle they live and like have any money basically saved, they are living in these like high rise apartments in downtown Cleveland or Ohio City or all those like hip hipster type places. I'm like astounded. Like the one girl I was shocked. She said she lives alone, no roommate, which I get. I mean, I, I know you're not into the roommate thing either. I don't think I would be either unless I was really young. But she pays like, I think she said she pays like, it was somewhere around like twelve or 1500 a month. And just her. And she's got this fancy place. But she picks up so much overtime at work to pay her bills that I'm like, what is the point of living somewhere that fancy? You're literally at work all the time. I, I don't get it. So that's another thing. You know, people like live it up in their early 20s if they have a good, decent job. And then where's all your money saved for when you want to actually buy a home? So there's a lot of factors than just the market being what it is and people not being able to afford. I don't think people take savings for their future seriously at all either um, when it comes to that because I, I can't imagine paying a mortgage for an apartment by myself. That's insane. Ooh, that is such a great point. I mean, I saw this in D.C. The, the rent is insane. And I will say I lucked out in that I found, I mean, it was a total God thing how I found my apartment when I got my job and first moved there. I definitely wanted to be somewhere that was historic and super charming. And so I found a great apartment, perfect apartment in Old Town Alexandria, which is like the perfect spot in the DC metro area. And it was a two bedroom so I could have a roommate split the rent. And it was honestly cheaper than a one bedroom in that area. Like it was a girl was breaking her lease. And I guess I just came at the absolute perfect time. And so I held on to that apartment. I mean, I stayed, I think, five years because in part I knew if I left I would never get a deal like that ever again if I decided to come back so I wanted to make sure when I left that I really was was leaving it behind and didn't see myself coming back in the near future but it was a great apartment um, no maintenance and definitely overpriced and I honestly could not imagine trying to live on my own in that area it's it's insane. It's very hard to own anything. But even if you do own something, I mean, what for what you get in that area, your money doesn't go very far. So, yeah, I definitely recommend to people live in cheaper areas in the country. Every city has its own distinct character and personality to it. But for the most part, you can find pretty much anything that you like to do anywhere. So sometimes I think people have this misconception that, oh, if I'm in one of these big metro areas, there's more opportunity. I think after COVID, we've realized that for most work opportunities, remote is a great option. And honestly, when you live somewhere cheaper, I think people are also realizing, hey, I have more money to spend traveling and visiting people elsewhere. Um, I find that I actually do more in a city that I'm visiting for a short time than I ever did living in a different city. I think when you just live somewhere, you go about your routine, you go about your day, and you really don't do the touristy things unless someone's visiting you from out of town. So yeah, I definitely know what it's like to, to experience that high rent, but I could never imagine paying that ever. So I definitely would tell those girls, uh, find a cheaper place or even live at home, save money if you can, depending on your situation. We'll be right back after this. 
This is Jess. Kramer? I'm listening. I sit in the car with my three children. I was going to share some thoughts I had on your discussion about why people maybe are not having children or are having children, etc., etc. Um, I'm definitely not going to be... Here, you can hear one in the background. Um, I'm definitely not going to be saying anything crazy or really innovative or you know profound but I think the biggest thing that needs to change if we want people to have more children is this whole concept that children are somehow rights instead of gifts that are freely given that we don't have a say in who they are you know like genetically um we don't have a say in you know when they come or what the circumstances because they're a gift and they're given to us and I also think not only are they gifts, but they're natural gifts as a normal part of everyday life. Um, they obviously require responsibility and sacrifice, and they do change your life. They are life-changing, but they shouldn't stop you from um, continuing to, 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 to do things that you enjoy or live out your life. I feel like um, because we view them as rights and not gifts, um, it has created um, a world in which your other world has to stop in order to be a mom and a dad. Like, you know, for example, I got married very young and I have now I'm been blessed with three children. And um, so I was, you know, 23 um, by the time my daughter, I just turned 23 by the time my daughter Daisy was born. And um, we didn't. Like, it, you know, babies are easy. I mean, in some ways, I mean, they're totally hard in others, but you can still bring them places. And so we didn't, you know, we didn't stop living our lives because we had a baby. We would bring her to parties. We, I mean, heck, we'd me and my husband would baby wear at a happy hour if we wanted to see our friends for a little bit. Uh, we didn't, it didn't stop us or preclude us from normal everyday life of enjoying other people's company because in fact I saw that as a good for her and a good for us um to to still and you know see our good friends and socialize and for her to be around them um because what I do see happening and I think this might be one of the reasons why people choose to wait to have children is they feel like oh that all has to stop I can't see my friends anymore I'm tied to my house because of a nap schedule I can only eat certain foods or have certain foods in the house um I don't have time to read books anymore I don't have time to pursue any hobbies um, my prayer life has to go to crap because of the kids and that's just really not so and I'm guessing the people that are not having children don't really have a prayer life either that could be part of the problem but I think that if you view them as yes gifts wonderful gifts but gifts that are supposed to only enhance everyday life not be something that inhibits it and um like we see in Europe, like they're just, they're much more like, yeah, they don't have children friendly spaces, but honestly, like maybe that's part of the issue that we do have all these special things that are just for children. Like instead of including them in our everyday life, we've made them something separate. Um, I feel that maybe if we shifted our perspective and encouraged a culture in which, um, children, you know, obviously, I mean, this is going to take a major culture shift, but I mean, it's, starts obviously from conception where we think it's a right that we get to choose if we have a kid and when and what circumstances I mean even the IVF industry is a perfect example of this where they genetically test you know the 13 embryos they created a petri dish and 
they pick the one that has the best genetic makeup and throw the rest down the trash can. And um, that's because they view it as a right to be, like, that they get to choose, and it's a right to be exercised, and um, not, you know, that they're in control of the situation, when in reality, um, you're not supposed to be. You're not God. And it's a gift he gives to us. Uh, so anyway, those are my thoughts. Um, sorry for the rambling, because uh, I'm a little distracted. But um, yeah, so I just encourage everyone, even you know, even I, just even within Catholic circles, I see it where people feel like they they actually even I have heard couples put off marriage because they don't think that you know their life is perfect enough to have a child in it. And yes, to a certain extent, that's definitely admirable, but. At the same time, like, if you have, the kids don't need much, and um, you're making them, again, not, you're taking, you're making them not a natural part of life, and uh, by having that viewpoint. Um, So anyway, God bless, Jessica. Enjoy your show. Um, Thanks for listening to my ramblings. Ooh, that is such a great point, Julia. I actually wrote about this for Crisis Magazine a while ago in my article, Babies Are Not Inconveniences or Commodities. And actually, in it, I make a very similar argument that contraception and in vitro reproductive technology both see children as either things to avoid or entitlements that we are owed, and we're not seeing children as gifts. So I think you're absolutely correct there. Um, I actually said, and I quote, All these man-made aids aid in is thwarting or circumventing nature for selfish motives. And while selfishness is bad in and of itself, when it comes to the sexual act and children, the byproduct of the sexual act, there should be absolutely no tolerance of it. With birth control used to avoid having children and in vitro infertilization and surrogacy used to purchase children, none of these see children for what they are, gifts. And these gifts and their good should be put above the wants and desires of adults. But it shouldn't surprise us that we don't see children as gifts because we as adults don't even see ourselves as gifts. Instead, we are all instruments to be used for how one sees sexual intercourse determines how one sees the human person and life itself. If one views the body as separate from the soul and intercourse as a means to the end of personal sexual pleasure, then the context in which it takes place and with whom won't matter and the matter made while having it won't either. But if they view themselves and the other as a gift and they see the act itself as a gift, symbolizing something greater, perhaps partaking in the Trinitarian communion of love, then they'll see the product of the act as one too. I really do love the point, though, that you made that children are a natural extension of life and that we shouldn't feel like the world has to stop and our lives have to stop just to have them. They are a perfect addition to the human family and not something that should be avoided just because they might make things a little bit more complicated or difficult. Something that I don't think the church hierarchy understands is that young people, the future of the Catholic Church, are drawn to the Latin mass. And the reason for that is not necessarily because we all know Latin or we all want to go to the Latin mass, but it has become so necessary to go to it because there's such a lack of reverence in the Novus Ordo. I came from the Diocese of Arlington. I think that is a rare diocese that does an exceptional job at maintaining reverence in the Novus Ordo. And the way that I describe reverence is, first and foremost, 
foremost, how we receive communion. There should be altar rails. You should be going up to the altar, kneeling, receiving it on the tongue by fellow priests or altar boy servers. And there shouldn't be Eucharistic ministers. There is something so irreverent about standing up and receiving Christ, if I really believe that that's his body in my hand by Karen from the PTA, it's just not reverent. So I think part of it is how we receive communion. It's sacred music, not music that makes you cringe. I, I don't know if you've ever been to a really hideous church with like really terrible music, but if I see a guitar or a piano, I am immediately in for a rude awakening. So sacred chant and sacred music incense you know like the thing about catholicism that i was so drawn to during my conversion was the smells and bells you know the the beauty in the sights of the gorgeous architecture the smell of the incense the sounds of a choir singing you know traditional latin hymns there's just something about the entire environment that is otherworldly and ever ancient and takes you away from this modern world so I really think young people, we are so, we feel so ripped off in modernity that when we go to mass, you know, if we're one of the few that still believe, we want to go somewhere that's going to transport us, that makes us feel like we're having an encounter with God and somewhere that feels like heaven. And until the bishops or the priests figure out how to have reverent Novus Ordo masses, I think you're just going to see a continuation of young people being drawn to the traditional Latin mass for the sake of reverence, first and foremost. So Bishop Malesic has decided to finally cut down the Latin mass. This is a request from Holy Father Pope Francis. And obviously, this is happening in dioceses all across the country, so it's not unique to Cleveland, but Cleveland was able to hold out a little bit longer. So it is sad, especially since I recently moved back. There will be traditional Latin Mass at St. Elizabeth of Hungary. The bishop has declared it a shrine, so there will be a order coming in that specifically celebrates the Latin Mass. And it has yet to be determined on whether a few parishes in the diocese will be able to keep it in addition to that. But I wanted to ask a very popular Latin mass priest, Father Brown, who actually used to be a Cleveland cop, very cool guy. I wanted to ask him about this, his response as a priest to the bishop's order. And then I also wanted to ask a fellow Catholic who is drawn and attracted to the Latin mass, her thoughts about it. I think our faith is probably the most personal thing about us. It is our relationship with our maker, and it feels extremely personal to have the Latin Mass being taken away from the parishes I grew up in with this Mass my whole life. Um, it's my favorite form of prayer, my favorite way of worshiping my creator, and I just don't understand how that is harmful or bad. I really wish Pope Francis would explain why he's doing this. I just, none of the reasons he's given have made any sense to me. I see people who, like me, grew up with it or have come to find it in recent years who really love this Mass that are now leaving the church for the Society of Pius X, which is not licit. It's valid sacraments, but it's not licit. It's not under the authority of Rome, which really concerns me. And I think that our Holy Father should really look at those people and those souls and make sure that we aren't losing them. I think that 
bishops making decisions to do this, I completely empathize with them. I mean, they're under the Holy Father in the hierarchy of the church that Jesus Christ established himself. The Catholic Church is about obedience. God calls us to obedience. He tested the saints over and over again. And so I don't I don't blame any bishops for following through with the Holy Father's request, but I do really, really wish the Holy Father would reconsider these decisions and seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit in reconsidering, and if not reconsidering, at least coming to make his flock understand, because I know a lot of people who are extremely angry and extremely hurt by this, and frankly confused, because I don't understand how the Mass that the saints prayed for centuries and centuries could possibly be harmful. It, it's just mind-boggling. Father Brown, I wanted to ask you what, whatever you can say, whatever you can share, what your thoughts are on that decision. And um, obviously you see a lot of young people drawn to the Latin Mass. Do you think that there's something that the church hierarchy is missing? I think everyone talks about reverence, and I think there's a reverence that um, is not always able to be achieved with the Novus Ordo. And I think that that type of reverence is, is what people are seeking. They're seeking silence. They're seeking, you know, chant. And those things are not a big part of the Novus Ordo. So I think they can be, but um, they haven't been to, to this date. So uh, I, I acknowledge what Bishop Molestic is trying to do. I, I, I you know, respect his authority and what he's trying to do. Of course, we're losing it in my parish, and I'm not, or I'm not happy about that. That's not a thing that I delight in. Uh, but as I told the people on Sunday, I said, this this is not the final chapter of this book, and that there will be more to be written about this, and that this is a mass that, that won't die. It'll continue and continue and grow and grow, and eventually it will be back in my church someday. <laughs> I love that. Um, one thing that I, I told Father Kevin Estabrook, who's actually my show's chaplain, I said, I really think that if they're going to cut down on the Latin mass, there needs to be an effort maybe of priests to bring back reverence to the Novus Ordo. I come from I, I just spent the last five years in the Diocese of Arlington. That's something that I really loved is how reverent our Novus Ordo Masses were. I didn't I didn't actually feel the need to go to a Latin Mass because I, when I'm going to Mass, I'm, I'm seeking reverence, and I saw that in the way that they did the Novus Ordo. Is there a way to do it that you think could grow in Cleveland and become popular? I think so. I think, I think you know, chant, sacred music, adorantum, uh, you know. No, we receive communion. Yeah, communion, kneeling on the tongue. No extraordinary ministers, all those things, I think, would be, they go a long way. Do you think that you could do that at Mary Queen of Peace? Do you think other priests could do that in the diocese? I mean, essentially, you know, after COVID, we didn't bring back extraordinary ministers here. um, So we haven't done that. Uh, We've had all male altar servers since then. And um, uh, there there remains some question about ad orientum. Okay. Okay, so there are ways to do it. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and we'll do as much as we're able to here. Uh, I, I told the people again on Sunday, I said, I promise you we'll have the most reverent Novus Ordo Mass in the Diocese of Cleveland. I'm extremely pessimistic about the future of the church right now. I think there are shockingly low rates of people who believe in the true presence of the Eucharist. And that just means there's no way that they're going to pass the faith down to their kids and their kids will believe. And so I think the church is growing smaller and smaller right now. I believe that we can turn that around through prayer and sacrifice and fasting and evangelizing the gospels, but I don't see that happening very well right now. So I think that the church will get a lot smaller. We will undergo persecution again and hopefully come back more strong.
strong and big and healthy than ever. Obviously, Jesus Christ promised that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, so I don't have any fear for the church itself, but I hope that we don't lose a lot of souls along the way. So I have Christopher Pereira with me, CEO of Tepiac Leadership. He wants to tell you about the Hour of the Lady conference that's coming up in November. Christopher, what is the purpose of this conference and what do people need to know? Absolutely. Thank you so much for the invitation, Jessica. The Hour of the Lady is really is becoming our our second platform for the advancement of our mission. I represent an organization called Tepeyac Leadership. And what we do is we train, we deliver formation to lay Catholic professionals, and we show them how to become influential leaders in society, in civil society. So it's Catholic leadership for civil society, for the world. So we have been doing this for the past six or seven years through our uh, flagship program, TLI, which always runs in the spring and, and continues to do so. But this year we're excited to launch our first national conference. It's a weekend experience, kind of a compressed version of the program. So in four days, we seek to do the same thing, advance our mission by investing in the next generation of lay Catholics, lay Catholic leaders for civil society. So it's a weekend conference at Orange County, California. It's going to be actually on the campus of Christ Cathedral at the Diocese of Orange. And everyone is invited to receive formation, tap into resources and network with a large network of, of Catholic leaders from around the country and even outside the United States um, so that we can influence society with the values of the gospel, Jessica. Ultimately, that's what this is about. So I did something when I was living in D.C. the past five years. I did something one year called the Leonine Forum. So it was for young Catholic professionals. How are you guys similar? How are you guys different from that? Sure. I'm familiar with the Leonine Forum and I respect them tremendously. They have been around for a lot longer than us. My understanding is that the Leonine Forum brings forward a very high level academic sort of um, theological, philosophical formation, which is really fundamental for, for leaders in every area of, of life. Our formation is a little more grassroots, I would say, a little more practical. It's a little, it's about really while you will find theology and catechesis and philosophy sprinkled throughout our content, what we really do is we bring down the teachings of the church to the practical level. Mm. So what does it mean to be a lay Catholic leader in education, healthcare, business, government, entertainment? And and we talk about the, the fields of leadership and the, the field that that we really highlight is board service, B-O-A-R-D, board service, because we feel that board service is where leadership happens. So ultimately, our objective as an organization, Jessica, is to have more faithful and committed Catholic voices at every table where decisions are made, those decisions that influence the culture. As you know, every human institution has a group of people that sit around a table on a regular basis to enact policies and, and charter the direction of the organization. That's how the culture is shaped. And we want more Catholics at those tables, decision-making tables. 
So my one question would be, that sounds great. How do you plan on getting people on boards and in those positions? Are there practical steps that they're going to be taking after this conference on advancing? Absolutely. There are practical steps. We Last year, we published a book that uh, in, encapsulates the vision of our, our, our mission, uh, of our organization, and it's called Catholic Leadership for Civil Society. There is a, an entire chapter dedicated to board service with some pointers as to how to get started on board service, how to, how to get your foot in the door. Uh, you know, you, you won't be in a major corporations or organizations board of directors if you are a young professional, just, just because you want to, right? You have to work your way in. And we talk about that. And we do that through the conference, through the training that we offer in the spring, through TLI and, and in the book as well. So yeah, it's, it's a topic that we dwelled on in depth, Jessica. Okay. Well, one thing I really liked when I was watching the video was you guys talked about Vatican II. And ironically, last week I had a segment with Mark Barnes where he talked about Vatican II and how the lady is called to the sanctification of the temporal order. Is this conference trying to reignite that concept in a really radical way? Or is it just attempting to have Catholics try to influence secular structures? Well, both, because they are connected. So so it is Vatican Council, the second Vatican Council, is where we believe we have our marching orders. So part of the message of our organization is that uh, this is not a novel concept for a lay Catholic, particularly professionals, those who God has blessed with a college education, with a professional path. Um, we have been given some gifts and talents and resources and have been placed by God in a position to influence, and we sit in privileged positions to influence society. So it's not an optional prerogative. This is really part of our vocation. As baptized, we're called to influence society. As Catholics, you know, it used to be that Catholics will become leaders in their own communities. If you think about uh, the first wave of Catholic Im immigrants to the United States, we founded all of these amazing human institutions in, in our communities. We would lead because we were Catholic, because we understood the connection between those two. The Second Vatican Council makes it very clear. It, it really um, delivers a bold challenge to the laity, and it tells us that we are called to infuse society with the values of the gospel, to transform, the, to renew the temporal order, to sanctify the world from within. Mm -hmm. so, so, absolutely. Okay. Well, I mean, there's there's a practical side to trying to be a great influence in within secular structures, but will there be plans of forming Christian structures that were once there in Christendom again? Yeah, I, I think we need to... If we talk about, you touched on, on two different things, uh, as far as I see it, uh, our take or, or our, where we see our field of mission is primarily in sending off, sending off uh, well-equipped, formed and, and committed Catholics into secular institutions, secular institutions. However, Christendom, as you know, is in ruins. We're standing in the, in the ruins of Christendom. And some people think, well, Christendom uh, is something of yesterday. You know, we'll never get back to that. Um, but I don't think so. I think we can rebuild Christendom. Christendom will not be what it used to be. It never was a perfect society because a perfect society will only exist in heaven. 
but it will be, it can be a society that seeks its order uh, according to the, God's will. And we can get back to that. Absolutely. It won't look like any of the models that we had in pre previous ages, but we can definitely recreate a society that puts Christ at the center of everything we do. All right. That's all I have for you. I want to thank my guests for today for participating in the multitude of segments. I want to thank Josh Booth for helping me with this week's show, Father Kevin Estabrook for being our show's chaplain, and especially you for listening. Thank you so much. And please remember to tune in next week. If you're like Aria and need more based, make sure you never miss an episode of The Based Catholic. Saturdays at 5 p.m. on AM 1420. The answer, as well as on all podcasting platforms and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Jessica Kramer helps you be Catholic and be based. There's a show. That's a show.